Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We have New York-based hedge fund McIntyre Partnerships on the line today. The firm is represented by none other than founder Chris McIntyre. Chris, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Chris, uh, tell us your story and uh, background. Sure. So, um, uh, McIntyre Partnerships, uh, I started in uh, 2017. Before that, I worked for 10 plus years at a variety of different hedge funds, always in sort of a um, event-driven sort of, you know, um, cyclical kind of interesting stock off the beaten path kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I've been just at this for like the last two years. Um, and uh, yeah, found an interest in the uranium markets recently. Okay. And, and give us, just give us a, a little more overview of the, of the firm. Uh, some of the, some of the, uh, you know, folks there, or if it's just you and maybe a few other staff, uh, the funds under management and also tell sure. us, tell the investors in the audience, uh, tell us how we can get a hold of you if there's any interest in the fund. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, the fund's just me. It'll only ever be just me. We basically run a, um, a, we is the Royal we. It's always just me. Um, it's a concentrated value strategy. So really we own like five to eight things. Um, and then, you know, I hunker down and I try to really focus in and really understand in great depth and detail what we buy. Um, assets under management are under 25 million. Um, the best way to contact me would probably be my email address. So you can, you can Google or go to McIntyrePartnerships.com. Um, and, uh, it has a contact info on there. Um, but yeah, okay. always happy to meet people and always happy to talk. So Chris, where are we in the markets today and where is the party in the market headed over the next 12 months in your opinion? Broad market, you know, we try not to make broad market calls. Um, but my attitude to one of my, so the market sold off quite rapidly the last couple months. And so, um, you know, S&P 500 is down like something like 16, 17%, I want to say right around now. Um, and small and mid caps are down something like 20 to 25. Um, and so one of the, the statistics I like is that we've had, since 1945, we've had 40 different market corrections of more, north of 10%. Uh, only eight of them have gone really south of 20, 22%. Um, and so, you know, and that's only really like five of them have gone south of 28 um, and so my general attitude is like when the market kind of pulls back north of 15%, um, I think it's very difficult to try to figure out exactly when like stocks will turn and when exactly the economy will turn and when people will start pricing in the rebound. And so I'm, you know, I, the way I phrase it is, I'm, you know, I'm not in the business of placing, you know, bets that are one to seven against and happen once every 15 years. Um, so I think while they're quite rapidly correcting right now, um, I think it, the outlook's probably relatively bright on like a two-year basis, let's say. And and so given the market conditions today, is your kind of ideal portfolio mix in terms of percentage long, short, and cash? Yeah, so I'm, you know, we, um, we will hedge out some risk occasionally. We try to keep our net basically um, close to 100, so I employ a tiny bit of leverage, like I run something like 120 gross long, and that'll be like something like 20 to 30 gross short. Um, and I'm basically 
um, in the process of getting it right around 100% net long right now. Um, I think it's just once the market kind of already corrects, and particularly in certain cyclical sectors, um, has corrected quite harshly, like materials other than uranium um, have quite harshly corrected. I think it just makes sense to sort of like, you know, don't worry too much about like, you know, the once every 50 year storm and focus on the once every two year cyclical rebound we do. So I'm basically 100% long. Right. And we're right at a point right now in the market where we're kind of uh, kind of experiencing what we experienced in 2016 a little bit as far as the decline uh, rates and kind of where we're at, where we're sitting with the, the technical setup and so forth. So it's it'll be interesting to see how things uh, at this point going into the new year and you know, how things will kind of respond and, and maybe get, get going back up again. Uh, so it'll be kind of uh, an interesting place for folks to watch uh, probably over the first quarter of 2019. Tell us where you're kind of interested in the market today. We've got uh, various things going on. So what, what sectors are you looking at today that you think have a nice value proposition over the next two years? You know, I I think the best sort of value proposition is really in higher quality names that have like a cyclical and market exposure. Um, so a lot of those sectors, I mean, if you look at like autos, materials, and say U.S. housing, um, you know, you can find a hundred stocks in those spaces down north of 50% in the last 12 months, right? A lot of them are down 50% in the last three months. Um, and sort of my attitude is when you see that sort of like rapid, you know, highly correlated sell-off in a sector, um, it's highly unlikely every one of those companies is worth 50% less than it was six months ago. Um, and to me in particular, I think this is when it really, when everything's going well, it doesn't really matter whether or not you're a great company or a mediocre company. Um, the Buffett quote I always like is, um, no one ever, uh, you don't know who's swimming without shorts on until the tide comes in. Um, but for those companies that are actually high quality businesses, low cost producers, um, have a specialty mix. So it's not so as cyclical as everything else. I think those are really interesting spots because even the high quality names have really come in. And the reality is the cash flows generated by those businesses, um, should be not as you know, whipsawy as some of the lower quality companies. And so I think there's a very interesting opportunity to pick up things that people would have told you are blue chip companies two years ago trading south of 10 times cash flow. So. Okay. And do you have, do you have a couple, uh, is there a name or two you want to share with the audience? Sure. Sure. It's, um, it's a little bit from uranium, but, uh, I, the, uh, my top pick right now is, um, Comores. It's the permanent low cost producer of titanium dioxide, uh, which goes into paint. Um, and so it's sold all the basic simple thesis is it's a really good business. It's sort of a more recent, um, to market stock. It got spun off in 2015 and it's been a kind of a crazy story. So people don't maybe know as much about the underlying business as they could as say, if it were a 20 year old stock that like had been through multiple ups and downs in the market. Um, but the very simple pitch is because it has a low cost production, that's, um, basically the average titanium dioxide producer in the world makes something like $400 a ton, um, over the cycle. And they make something like seven hundred plus dollars a ton, and so that large spread. And it's they basically have a different input process than everyone else in the world. And they cracked the code in the seventies or sixties, rather, um, and they've maintained this status for sixty plus years. Um, and so um, because of that, like the model, it'd be very difficult to see how the company earns less than three dollars in free cash flow per share. Um, and I think you have to paint like a massive global economic catastrophe to get less than three dollars. Um, in which case. Lots of things are going to be down. But so when you're buying at $27 a share, even in a catastrophe, it's something like two and a half times levered. 
Um, right now it's like one to one and a half times levered. Um, so it's not too levered. The earnings shouldn't completely wipe out. And if they do, it's still kind of cheap to those numbers anyway. Uh, um, and if we don't have a giant global catastrophe, the soccer and something like $6 in free cash flow, it's a $27 stock and they're going to buy back 20% of the company a year for the next two years. So I think it's particularly compelling investment. So also I'm, it's probably the company I know it's not probably, it's definitely the company I know best. Um, as I've been an investor in, in over the last three years, so. Okay, and the uh, kind of the, the material side, uh, the supply demand with titanium dioxide is, is uh, what's what's the status on that? Does that play into uh, this this your thesis on this one? It's actually so the way so I underwrite the thesis to like a worst case scenario. So like literally, when I say three dollars in earnings per share, I'm saying like many other titanium producers are going bankrupt and they're still making three dollars a share. So I always underwrite to a worst case environment. Um, but the actual titanium dioxide market is relatively tight. Um, so if you look at like in you know 2015 into 2016, a lot of commodity businesses really suffered. We had a dollar strengthening period in 2014, and then we had built a surge in Chinese capacity across a lot of chemicals, particularly base chemicals um, following. So, you know, taking a step further back, you had 20, 2008, everything tanked, lots of, you know, force majeures, bankruptcies, yada, yada. Um, then we had that big cyclical rebound coming out, which brought on a lot of capacity. And so a lot of the markets heading into the 2014, 2015 into 2016 Q1, um, cyclical slowdown. Um, a lot of them were running at like, um, low utilization rates and TR2 would be no different. Um, so in that period it was something like a high seventies to low eighties utilization, and that's not good for the market. Um, and so, you know, we went to break even levels, capacity came off and then we've kind of come back. At present, though, we're running something like a low 90s utilization. So to actually see the whole market unwind, um, even for the lower cost, for the higher cost producers and more mediocre businesses, um, you'd need to see a very large economic slowdown. Um, paint demand is not particularly most. It's like 70% of the market for uh, titanium dioxide is like paint. Um, paint sales, you know, are like a GDP growth kind of business. Um, with not too much cyclical downside. It's, it cycles down into downturn, but it's like down five, not down like 30. Um, and it's also um, compared to uranium, the inventories are like really actually not that large. It's like a quarter or two of inventories in the world. So it's not like you can have this like multi-year inventory destock. Um, and right now we're running low 90s utilization. So even in a slow economic environment, I wouldn't expect titanium dioxide to plunge towards break even for the marginal producers. Um, I would expect that you would still see decent overall economics. And when stocks are cheap and leverage is reasonable and management owns a ton of stock, which they do in this case, and they're very interested in buying back their own stock. I mean, we can stay crazy for a bit, but we're buying in stock as we stay crazy. And typically, you know, and I've never seen a company be able to buy out 40% of its float in two years without taking on leverage. So. I think it's a very interesting setup in some ways, but I think TR2 in general should probably fare well, even in a reasonably okay. bad recession. So, so no, that sounds interesting, and uh, at the, the audience will have to look at, look into that a little bit if you're interested. Um, so, the uh, recently the Economist uh, made mention of your firm because you decided to get into the uranium market. Uh, let's mm -hmm. kind of give us an overview of your thought process on the uranium market at this point. And, and what your reasoning is for getting into it. Sure. So, you know, I've followed the uranium thesis for a couple of years now. Um, you know, 
marginal cost is say forty dollars to like the seventy fifth percentile producer, right? And spot prices were well below that. Um, incentive costs is something like fifty, let's say. Um, but my problem has been, or the problem I think in investing in the space for a number of years has been um, the long term contracting, which I'm sure many people are familiar with, and also just like the inventory position in the market. You know, four years of inventory. You know, it's hard to figure out exactly what's happening in the market, and particularly when we're in oversupply right now. You know, or this was over the last couple of years. You know, it was just very difficult to see to have sort of clarity into like when prices are going to rally and yada yada. Um, and so, you know, it's a thesis I've been tracking, but not really investing in in the background. Um, and then to me, the critical thing is when um, uh, Cameco really shut down their plant and uh, not plant mine, um, and like permanently shut it down. Not like you know, not well, not permanently, but like not you know slowed it over a quarter like no it's closed and it's going to take a while to turn it back on and so basically like you know it's a cyclical industry where you have seen big picture cyclical industry where you're seeing actual um you know production discipline from suppliers trading well below marginal costs um and so to me i think the setup is very favorable going forward right we're going to test the market we're going to see how much excess inventory really is sitting around um and in particular we're testing the market into the contracting wave um, that should start in 2020 through to 2022 when it actually really sort of tips into like we really need to actually see spot prices rally or else the whole market doesn't make any sense. And so to me, the setup is very favorable heading forward um, where you have basically a strong catalyst in um, Cameco, you know, switching from supplying to buying in the market. Um, and then you have the huge wave of the long term contracts starting to roll off first in 2020 and then much more seriously in 2022 and if you figure producers or not producers um utilities will be out there contracting say 12 to 24 months in advance of when really the contracts start to roll you know we have production discipline into a period where you're going to see actual demand start to return to the market um and i think it's a very powerful combination that could really drive prices certainly towards 40 dollars, and if not north of that um in the next like year or two years so that's kind of my thoughts on the market there. Okay. Um, so do you see with, with all that, do you see the perception from an investor standpoint, a market standpoint, do you see investors starting to, in say in 2019, 2020 price in this, these fundamentals that have, that are starting to occur, the long-term contract signing, which uh, may start next mm -hmm. year all the way through 2022. How do you see investors? Do you see investors kind of waiting till the last moment on this, or do you see the perception people starting to see what you're seeing, and they start getting involved, uh, say next year? Do you see that, or how do you kind of see the investors coming into this space? Um, so, I, I, so as an anecdotal point, I um, I send my letters to lots of my friends on on the street, um, and I wrote up uranium in one of my letters, um, which is how I got an economist. Um, and I've gotten maybe 10 calls from people being like, this uranium thesis is really interesting. Um, so I think we're kind of at a point where people are starting to revisit it because it had been this sort of like, I could have told you that the long-term contracts will start rotating in 2020 and then we're well below marginal costs for the curve. The same exact thesis in 2015 and 2014 as well, uh, and 2016 and 2017. Um, but you're finally at a point where like prices have finally actually have inflected and we're actually looking at that we're going to have a, a, a production um, deficit next year. Um, and so we're actually at a point where some of the stuff is starting to matter. And I think you're definitely going to see and have started to see investors sort of come back to the space and sort of instead of it just being the same, you know, 10 
really dedicated uranium bulls all talking to each other about why uranium prices should eventually rally. I think you're starting to see some new money coming into the space. And in particular, as this sort of starts playing out and the prices continue to rally a bit, I certainly think you can see financial, you know, generalist sort of dollars or sort of like the, the commodity funds that had heard the thesis and passed on it successfully um, for years and years in a row start coming back and being like, hey, wait, maybe this time actually it is different. And I do think you're starting to see that. Right. I, yeah, I agree. Um, so catalyst-wise, what's your thoughts on Section 232 that's in progress with the Department of Commerce? What's your view on that? And do you believe that in 2019 that will be a, a substantial uh, potential game changer? I think for some of the, like, so we've structured our bet mainly in um, the participation corporations. And so I, I stay a little bit away from the, the miners for a variety of reasons. Um, I think certainly for individual stocks, it can be, you know, a big catalyst. Um, I think government policy coming out of any administration and maybe a little bit more so the Trump administration is, is hard to sort of guess at. Um, and so I don't really think it makes a ton of sense just given like the structure of the uranium market and like what it could potentially, I mean, like, I think it's, you know, you're going to get a lot of pushback from utilities and it raises the price, but, um, I think it's a, a kind of a crapshoot what comes out of it. Um, if I had a specific investment that was, you know, a miner in the U.S. for, you know, with upside leverage to it, I think I would think of it as a very interesting sort of optionality. Um, but I don't know that I think it's something that's. I don't know that I can get within a ninety percent probability of what's going to happen here, and so I kind of have put it towards the back of my thinking. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I was just just thinking that you know certainly in the United States, I think that some of the utilities uh, have got them thinking about you know do we do we wait on on our contracting? Do we wait to see obviously this outcome? And, and is there some that are potentially waiting to see the outcome in 2019 before they start making their moves on the contracting front? And so it'll be kind of interesting to see uh, when this gets cleared off the table and what utilities then come to the market and whatever the outcome is immediately start looking at, you know, signing contracts domestically with, with us uh, domestic product producers or, and also part of that filling their remaining requirements uh, outside of the U S you know, Canada, Australia, et cetera, um, for, for different supply agreements. Um, and so I just was, was curious to know what, what you thought about that. And I, I, I certainly think it helps, uh, you know the price, the price fundamentals uh, moving forward, um, and mm -hmm. kind of see how everything kind of comes together. So uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned a vehicle, Uranium Participation Corp. Um, what what other ones? What other vehicles are you looking at? Are you looking at Yellow Cape PLC? There's there's some other companies that are coming out publicly uh, soon. Mm -hmm. what, what's your thoughts on on vehicles? So I actually the discount right now is actually wider. Both are at a slight discount, which is actually an anomaly. Um, not a total anomaly, but you know, it tends not to happen in periods of it, the price going up at the very least. Um, but I actually, I think yellow cake is the, the cheaper of the two. Um, uh, and so I've mainly preferred to bet there. Um, I think it helps to have sort of both because you don't know exactly where discounts are going to show up. Um, but I've mainly been buying yellow cake actually. Um, I think some of the other vehicles, um, I'm not really interested in, uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but the trading one, whether they're going to own and trade. Um, 
and I, I prefer simplicity and I can do the trading myself. Maybe well, maybe not, but I prefer to just sort of focus on one thing and just owning the assets good enough for me. Um, and so I mainly am focused there. And then, you know, I think there could be opportunities in some of the sort of small cap miners. Um, I think the larger caps are discounting already a higher uranium price, which is logical because they have some long-term contracts. Um, but I, it, to me, I think the, this, you know, I'm a big fan of simplicity in investing, like boil it all down to a very simple thing. And when you're buying a participation corp, and I consider Yellow Cake to be essentially a participation corp as well, um, you know, it's a very simple thing. It's uranium prices go up and almost certainly over a period of time, uh, they will track the nav of the uranium values. And it's an unlevered vehicle, or essentially unlevered vehicle with, you know, a simple story to the upside that I just have to get the uranium price right. And I feel like I have a pretty good chance, certainly on a five-year period, of uranium prices returning to marginal costs or incentive costs. Um, and I think heading into the contracting wave, a, a, a good one to two-year chance. So. Okay. And uh, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on chemical being kind of the uh, the the bigger blue chip of the industry? Uh, do you do you see that chemical has a fair uh, upside uh, opportunity to it, or do you see these uh, you know the yellow cakes and the uranium participation corps primarily as the uh, the way to go in in the in the safety safety side of things? And with that, there is another company. Think the, the uh, uranium trading corp or whatever that's supposed to be IPO. Yeah. That's a company out of California, and then there's also mm -hmm. a royalty company. I think Uranium Royalty Corp or something that's supposed to be coming out. Mm -hmm. What What are your thoughts on a royalty vehicle for this, and and what are your thoughts on Chemical? Yeah, the I haven't actually looked at the at the royalty vehicle. I looked at the trading vehicle, um, and again, I just didn't like the fact that they're going to trade. Um, Chemical, I think, is. You know, they have great position minds. Um, they're the big dog in the industry. Well, they're one of the two big dogs in the industry. Um, I think I just have a general difficulty getting behind um, a mining company um, that's not trading at like a really interesting, you know, optionality value, or it could be like a 10 bagger, you know, something like this sort of small cap, um, micro cap mining kind of equities. Um, to me, it's just, you run into like, what are they going to do with the cash? Are they going to build out the mine? How long will it take? It, it becomes sort of a, you're betting um, on a very capital intensive and at its core commodity industry. And I can tell you that I, you know, historically capital intensive commodity business models have not been the highest performing in the sec in the market. Um, and so I don't think there's anything really wrong with an investment in Cameco. I just think it's, easier to get behind just buying the, the physical commodity. And what's your, and what's your thoughts uh, related to, um, you know, some of these New York stock exchange uh, listed companies, um, some of the ones that these mining companies that may, you know, probably see the first bit of liquidity, uh, heavier, heavier duty buying by potentially some of these, you know, mid-sized smaller funds. Um, do, mm -hmm. do you see that as an area that, that investors should consider? Um, because of that liquidity, what, what's your thought on the, on the ones that are liquid, you know, like the energy fuels, the, the denizens and those types? Do you think those will be kind of the, the first places that people would look uh, from a fund perspective that are looking for kind of liquid names to get into? I think if you um, want to make the bet that the 
that everyone's going to shift their focus towards uranium now, right? Which is a difficult thing, I think. But I think if you want to make that bet, those are clearly the, the things that are going to explode. Every single upside commodity boom, always sort of the interesting liquid, but not super liquid, you know, small cap mining kind of plays are the ones that go crazy, right? Um, it's where the upside to get like, you know, 500% return in a year is. Um, and so I think they're interesting. I think if you really get a strong opinion, um, like you see the utilities start coming back in in 2019 and it just looks like it's like they're going to start doing the contracts now and they just know that the price needs to be 40 plus dollars a pound. I think, you know, and energy fuels or Davidson certainly can be interesting place to put some money. And you keep mentioning uh, kind of a small, small cap, real small companies that have a real significant value proposition. And I'm, and I'm sure, Chris, you've probably been looking at those a little bit. Uh, is there any, is there any that you, you want to mention, or is there any examples that you want to provide that, that is gaining your interest? The honest answer, and I don't have a specific one yet. Um, I could see doing it. And to me, the way the bet's always going to be structured is I'm going to have 80% of the bet just in the role. Um, and so I don't have like a, I, I don't have a good, interesting stock pick. Yeah, no, I, I think it's interesting because you mentioned, you mentioned kind of the, uh, the real, the real safe method method and you're kind of, you know, going, putting most, most of your uh, capital to work with the, the safer uh, bets. Um, but, you know, as, as you know, in this sector, there is a, a quite a bit of pop that can come from some of these real small mining exploration mm -hmm. Uh, explore codes, and, and so if you look at the last cycle, certainly. So I was just curious to know if, if you, and I'm sure you're looking at that a little bit. So it'll be interesting to maybe get your thoughts, uh, you know, going forward on that. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we're six months. So I'm always a big fan of like, um, I run very concentrated, um, and so to me, when I'm looking at like a, a small cap miner, I'm with a question in my head is, would I rather just double my position in the role, um, or would I rather take the sort of operational equity? sort of risk in these things. Um, and so I think that they are potentially interesting. And we're also, you know, if it does really look like, again, it's not that the problem you're gonna run into is whether or not they'll move before you get there. But like, you know, I think if you get into next year and it's not just that we turn off this mine and or these two mines, whatever, um, and um, that like we've had this pop and it's gonna fizzle, um, you know, if it really does look like, you know, we get through 232, U.S. utilities start hitting the market and like they're going to, because the U.S. utilities is the first wave um, of demand before Europe. Um, it, it's, I think then you can start really maybe taking a look at taking a sort of like a, a smaller bet in sort of these very, you know, skewed asymmetric kind of uh, small caps. Right, right. So, so on the on the on the other side, the exit strategy. Uh, what's what's your thoughts on on going forward on on how you will kind of monetize and and, and make your exit as uranium prices climb? What what's what are you going to look for as potentially an indicator or two indicators that you might use as possibly a way to to start lightening your position and potentially looking for the exits? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my basic trading strategy is like. Um, I think of it as in the, I have a short-term bet and a long-term bet. And so you have to think about where you're going to exit on, on those two things. Um, the short-term bet is basically the, the, the mine closures are the catalyst and the, the wave starts 2019 into 2020, right, of demand. Um, and in that case, you know, prices should rally throughout that period. Um, if that ends up being a little bit too, you know, um, 
bullish, I guess. Um, you know, you could see prices drift back down. Um, in which case, you know, I also think about it as being like a by 2022, we almost certainly have to, and I get that that's a couple of years out, but we almost certainly have to see prices rebound. Um, and so, like, I have a position on if this takes a bit longer and prices sort of pull back, I have the ability to, to increase my position size quite substantially, sort of thinking about $20 is sort of like a realistic bottom, ignoring some sort of like giant catalyst, like, you know, another nuclear meltdown. Um, and so that's kind of how I'm thinking about the trading in it. On the exit, I think 140, or not 140, 140 would be nice to get. Uh, 40 is sort of a pretty consensus-ish, lots of industry consults kind of get around there, um, you know, incentive price. And so between 30 and 30, excuse me, 35 and 40 is when I think you might see some mine restarts, um, which will be sort of not great for the price. Um, but I think you, that's when you start talking about that coming back in. Um, and I would sort of, you know, I'm sort of basically like, I'm in it until we start to hit like 40. Um, and then I'm in it also until we get to 50. Um, but I would start scaling back north of 40. And I would probably exit the bulk of my position, you know, unless it really does look like a change cycle. Um, you know, I, I don't really think I would own uranium north of $50 a share or pound. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, you know, I'm just kind of looking at the, the supply demand fundamentals, the long-term parts of it, and, and just really what's, what's is, is Section 232 going to provide that that catalyst to get to that incentive price? You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know even even some of these these ones that claim to be better, you know, they, they, they tell you about, oh, our costs are $20, our costs are $25, $30, $35. But the fact of the matter is when you factor in their total, total cost, uh, mm-hmm. And their GNA and their lavish uh, compensation, you'll, you'll find that <laughs> most of this stuff is is hovering closer to 50 in my view. And I and I've looked at them a lot, as you as you probably know. Mm-hmm. And and some of the recent, you know, talking, it'll be interesting too because we've got some folks on the record, uh, you know, CEOs of some companies on the record saying that there's no way we're going to do anything uh, until it's at 50. So it'll be interesting to see if they actually stick with what they said mm-hmm. and don't get itchy to try to sign something at 45. You know, I mean, obviously it makes sense for cash flow reasons to take a small bite of potential deals to get some cash flow going at 40, 45 a pound. But, you know, will these folks obligate all of their uh, production at those prices or are they going to be smart and hold out for better prices? So it'll be interesting to see how that functions and how the utilities come in and do their long-term contracting post section 232. Um, so mm-hmm. I think you can have some real interesting pieces that kind of come together. So, so your time horizon, uh, give me, give me an idea of, of your total time horizon uh, for this uh, uranium trade. I'm kind of, I don't really like to think of things in time horizon um, only because like so many crazy things happen that, you know, it always blows my time horizons up um, over the last decades of doing this. Um, I think of it really as like, you know, three years from now, um, we are staring right at like a very huge wave of demand. Um, and so I kind of struggle to see it not in the absence of sort of a global macro catalyst. Um, and for me, it's really just like another Fukushima, um, you know, in the absence of that, like, it just almost sort of has to work. Um, and I, you know, knock on wood, and I hate to say things like has to work, but um, it just seems 
improbable that it doesn't reweigh before then because I just don't understand where the, the supply of uranium is going to come from. Um, and so I think of it as that. And then I think there's a very good six to 12 month, you know, we enter 2019 in seven days or 10 days or whatever, uh, but we enter 2020 and there's, there's the actual start to be a pickup of long-term demand. Um, and so you kind of like, I think of it really as like, there's a very good medium term catalyst. And then on a longer term, three year, not like super, super long term, um, super, super long term. I agree. Prices have to go north of 50 because we're just going to run out of capacity and we have to restart these mines and no one's going to do a greenfield mine at $40. I mean, unless you find a really good mine. Um, and so I think of it as really like a really strong six to 12 month trade that for a thousand different reasons could end up not really working out in your favor. Um, you know, general market sentiment, the, 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 discount premium in the, the participation corps. Um, you know, all those sort of things could combine over like the medium term, the next 12 months, but within three years, I think it's, and if you're trying to write underwrite an IRR, so within three years we have to go to $50, let's say, I mean, you know, that's up 70 or something like that. And so you're like, Oh, that's a, that's a relatively attractive IRR relative to almost any sort of investment you can make. Um, and so I think of it really in those two sort of timeframes. Yeah, it makes it makes sense, and and with uh, you know with the utilities coming in there, and even these mines that uh, that proclaim you know to have great costs, everybody seems to forget about the fact that they, they think that somehow tomorrow you turn the key in it, and all of a sudden the mine starts, and they, yeah. they completely forget about the permitting side. They they forget about what you know. Let's let's just assume. Let's just take next gen as as a example. It, it's mm -hmm. a great asset, but the permitting and all the timelines needed, the commissioning, the building of the mine, the fact that they got to raise a billion plus, uh, this stuff it does not happen in 2021. It doesn't happen in 2022. Uh, so that mm -hmm. all that supply doesn't come online for some time. And so there's a big delay. In my view, there's a big delay with the cost gets, gets to 40, gets to 50. Okay, now people are going to start making decisions to start constructing, but there is still that long period delay of when you actually can start fulfilling the contracts. And so uh, that's what really, to me, is further exciting this uh, situation. Um, oh, yeah. So anyway, you mentioned a couple of negative, negative things, uh, kind of the, the, bear, the bear case. What, what are your thoughts on the bear side and what do you see as the major kind of bear case highlight I think the bear case, to me, most of the conversations I have um, with other fund managers um, is less, do we really think uranium prices should be lower per pound? Um, uh, and more, when is it actually going to happen? Um, and I think that's sort of like a, I'm always very cautious. You know, I'm always like, I always ask people, like, what, what do you think about this? Where can I be wrong? And like the pushback I get on this is much more when than if. Um, I think the bear case, you know, you're kind of looking at like, oh, the inventories is still too much around, so that's just going to weigh on it for longer than people think. Um, and I, I, you know, if I thought practically about what I think it's slow price momentum next year, it's probably something around like, you know, excess inventory in Japan starts coming out. Um, you know, I think there's some degree of like, oh, energy prices are actually lower for nat gas in the U.S. and so yada yada. But you know, I mean, like, I think you have a pretty good visibility into like reactor build outs in China. But the, the thing is those sort of things move like the demand picture, not that much. Um, 
compounded over a decade, it really does move the demand picture. But I don't really think that sort of bear argument moves it in like a 2021 contracts are up. You know, you can't just switch the whole grid from 25% electric or not 25% um, nuclear to 25% nat gas. That's not going to happen in two years. Um, so I think the bear case is much more around you're always going to have this, you know, nuclear meltdown risk that will not be good if the day it happens. Um, and then you're going to have sort of a generic commodity oversupply. Maybe it lasts longer than people think bear case. Um, and I could see that the, the latter bear case, I could see both bear cases sort of playing out. Um, but, you know, I think that's where, you know, even if it takes longer than you want it to take, um, by 2022, which is three years out, basically, it sort of has to start working or else it's just, what, where is this? I mean, like, you know, we're going to start eating really into the, even these huge strategic reserves that we have. So it's sort of like, I think really much around, like, I don't think there's really a strong bear case around like prices not rallying by 2022. Yeah. I don't, I don't see the, uh, the inventory side playing too much into it at this point. I mean, there is still some secondary supply, you know, going, going on that's, mm -hmm. that's contributing just a little bit. Uh, Japan is restarting. The government there is obviously uh, pro pro restart, pro nuclear, and so in mm -hmm. that case, uh, what what was available to sell from Japan, I don't believe any utility at this point in Japan is even considering uh, selling inventory. I think that stopped uh, probably quite honestly. I think it stopped probably at least a year ago, maybe two years ago. And so I don't see uh, you know the DOE is not doing anything further. Uh, made of megatons and megawatts is no more. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, and you have, you have Rick Perry in there. So as long as Rick Perry remains in that, in that office at the DOE, I don't, I don't see that there's going to be any issues coming out from his side that are uh, negative uh, weighing on the, uh, the thesis. So I think you have uh, a number of things that are kind of pointing in the right direction. And then also too, you know, people talk about mat gas, solar wind, and this stuff, uh, energy mix in the United States, coal, et cetera. The bottom line of it is, is the coal plants are still running. Uh, the nuclear plants still run. So it doesn't matter how many how many mac gas plants you build in the United States here going out. It doesn't matter how many solar panels you get put together out there in the solar field, which incidentally take up incredibly incredible amounts of land. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you have all of those issues. But these plants, these 98, 99 plants, the one the one in construction, whatever it is, in the U.S., these plants continue. To operate and they continue to consume. And uh, last I checked, uh, the United States grid needs these plants still running, and they're going to run for some time. So the consumption is still going to be there. And uh, so I think it's really interesting with that. And then also, uh, you know, we had a brief discussion with Newscale uh, Power uh, just just a while ago, and uh, Newscale's uh, SMR technology in the United States uh, is in process with the NRC, uh, probably to be approved in 2021. And the SMR technology may be a significant game changer in the United States on how the United States looks at nuclear and how a nuclear power going forward is deployed, not on a conventional reactor basis, but on a small modular reactor basis, uh, small, smaller plants, smaller footprints, less cost, uh, you know, stuff you can make in a facility and ship it out to a site. And so it's pretty impressive, uh, you know, some of the things that are kind of taking place. Um, so yeah, I think I think the bear case at this point would be the, the best bear case in my view is a, a near-term market crash. But quite honestly, um, I, I see that as 
uh, bullish because I would love to get some of these uh, opportunities even cheaper, Chris. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, so I think I think that that one's there. And then if you look at the the meltdowns and you know all this all this stuff about people you know afraid of the afraid of that happening, you know this this sector has the nuclear power industry has one of the most impeccable safety records of any other form of energy generation. And if you go back from the 63-year operating history of commercial reactors dating back 60-some, 62, 63 years ago, you've had really two incidents. Three Mile Island does not count because it really wasn't anything of an incident in my view. But you have Chernobyl and you have Fukushima. Two incidents in 63 years. Fukushima just happened 2011. Do the math. Place your bets. Yeah, I'm like a very um, you know, if, when you're starting to risk your uh, when you're starting to list your risk factors, if like towards the top is like an act of God, you found like a good risk reward investment. You know, like. <laughs> right, right. So, so it's very interesting, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how this time plays out. Um, and there's there's certainly some interesting factors taking place. Uh, and the actions that have happened in the industry, late 2016, 2017, and 2018, all point uh, in a positive fashion. And uh, so it's interesting. And we have we have other countries really pushing those quite well. You know, China and India are going after it. You know, you have uh, France pushing back to 2035, uh, and you have issues in Germany that are starting to creep up. Um, you have a number of issues, and, and Russia is running around the world, uh, having a good time signing contracts and, and providing a full suite of nuclear uh, products, from financing to new plants to fuel cycle and the whole mess. So you have quite a interesting uh, group of, of factors that are that are starting to take place. So, you know, uh, on the bear side, you know, the best thing I can come up with is a market crash, which would put everything on sale, which uh, doesn't sound too bad. Agreed. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll leave it there, uh, Chris. Uh, how can potential investors one more time reach out uh, to you and the uh, McIntyre team? Sure. Um, so the easiest way, I think, is if you just go to the, um, our website, which is McIntyrePartnerships.com. Um, you can also just Google it and it'll come up. Um, and so my, my, my name and logo are on the website, in case you're wondering. It's M-C-I, McIntyre, with a Y, T-Y-R-E. Um, and so, yeah, just reach out to me um, on there. It has our uh, phone number. I could pick up the phone whenever and uh, email address. So, yeah, great. Okay. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure, and uh, take care and talk soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me.